Hey, it's Andrew Claven with this week's interview with Senator Ted Cruz. I'm always delighted to talk to Senator Cruz. For one thing, I don't want him to think that everyone at the Daily Wire is as low a character as Michael Knowles. But also, he is the closest thing I have in American politics to a spirit animal. And that's important because this is a very strange moment in Republican politics. Donald Trump has rewritten the script of what Republicans are and what they want to be and what people expect them to be. And in many ways, I think he's done that in a good way by focusing them more on cultural issues, by making them less afraid of the media. But the one thing Donald Trump isn't, actually— is an actual conservative. He's not all that uh, obsessed with the idea of making the government constrain itself to the enumerated powers of the Constitution. Senator Ted Cruz has been fighting that fight in Texas for quite a long time. Uh, He has written a new book called Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. We'll talk about that with him and about the upcoming election and primaries. Senator, it's good to see you. Drew, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, let's let's talk about the book first on woke. Def, define cultural Marxism as opposed to just regular old Marxism. Well, cultural Marxism is a phenomenon. While the book actually traces it, uh, the history of how the radical left seized each of the major institutions of our society, and and so each chapter of the book deals with a a, a different institution. The very first chapter focuses on universities. And, and, and I call universities the Wuhan lab <laughs> of the woke virus. It, it's where the virus was invented. It's where it mutated. It's where it spread. From universities, the book goes on to K through 12 education, to journalism, to big business, to big tech, to government, to entertainment, a world you know well, Hollywood, movies, television, sports, music, to science. And then the final chapter is on China, which I see as a central nexus that is intertwined with all of them. And what the book really seeks to do is two things. Number one, explain how and why the left seized control, infiltrated them from within. And number two, to lay out a positive, proactive battle plan for how we take these institutions back. Because I think if we don't recapture these institutions, we're going to lose our country. And and so In terms of what do I mean by cultural Marxism, I describe in chapter one how starting in the 1960s and the 1970s, Marxists began infiltrating the universities. And at the time, it was just plain vanilla Marxists. It was people who believed, followed the teachings of Karl Marx, that society is in inevitable conflict, and it's a conflict between so-called oppressors and so-called victims. And the solution that Marx advocated for was the violent revolution of the proletariat the workers, against the owners of capital, and ultimately to have government seize control to forcibly redistribute wealth, that's ordinary Marxism. When it began in the 1960s and 70s, Marxists began becoming tenured professors and faculty administrators at universities, you began seeing different mutations. One of the first was critical race theory. Use the same Marxist frame But instead of looking at it socioeconomically, broke the world into oppressors and victims based on race. From there, it transmogrified into things like queer theory, using sexual orientation or gender identity as the matrix of oppressor and victim. And most recently, we're seeing it play out on universities with the rabid anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment, where to the cultural Marxist, those who use culture and ideas to force enforce Marxist ideology, they have defined, they have coded Jews 
as the oppressors. And they have coded Palestinians as the victims. And that's why you see cultural Marxists celebrating the violent revolution of the so-called victims against the so-called oppressors. The thing that's confusing about this to me is, is you link in China, which has been piping the stuff into the country through TikTok and basically through the youth. But China doesn't live like this at all. I mean, they, yeah. won't, let, they won't let celebrities look gay. They don't want any kind of feminine men on TV. They certainly are not multicultural. They put their Uyghurs into concentration camps. They're not yeah. inviting the world in as we're supposed to do. Is this just something they're selling to us, or is there some connection between their philosophy and the ones being preached in the universities? Well, I think there's a very significant component in which they are selling it to us, and it is undermining our youth. You mentioned TikTok, the garbage that TikTok is pushing on young people, the self-harm that TikTok is pushing on young people, the, the attacks on positive body image, particularly with young girls. It is systematic. The suicide rates that are coming out of TikTok, where the algorithms reinforce negative messages and push our kids down very dangerous paths, I think that's incredibly harmful. You look at Israel and Hamas and the percentage of pro-Hamas propaganda that TikTok pushes at young people is manifested in the ideas where our young people have a greater antagonism to Israel than any generation because they're being indoctrinated with pro-Hamas messaging. Now, you asked why. I think it's a combination of two things. One, I think it is very deliberately to undermine our youth, and they're not doing it to their, to their own young people. They don't want the same ideas among their own young people. But secondly, I think it is an assertion of power. So when I arrived in the Senate 11 years ago, at the time, I was saying that communist China poses the single greatest long-term geopolitical threat to the United States over the next century. China is fighting a thousand year war. Their objective is global domination. Their objective is economic domination of the United States, military domination, diplomatic domination, and they are fighting it using every front. Now, Drew, when I, when I got to the Senate in 2013, that view was a lonely view. All the Democrats disagreed and most of the Republicans disagreed. They looked to China and they saw nothing but dollar signs. As far as the eye can see, well, in the decade plus since then, a lot more people's eyes have been opened. So let's take, for example, Hollywood. I describe in the chapter in the book on woke, the entertainment chapter, I describe the incredible influence that China has over Hollywood. And, and so, for example, you're talking about sexual orientation. The movie Bohemian Rhapsody, a fantastic movie about Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. It's a fantastic portrayal. Well, when it was released in China, China forced the movie makers to edit out scenes showing Freddie Mercury as gay. Now, how the hell do you tell Freddie Mercury's life story without <laughs> to, acknowledging he was gay? You have to change the name of the band. Pretty to who he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, the virtue signaling woke Hollywood producers more than happy to take that out at the behest of the Chinese. I also describe how Top Gun, the sequel, Maverick, the second one, you remember the original Top Gun, Maverick's jacket, on the back he had four flags, one of which is the Japanese flag and one of which is the Taiwanese flag. Well, what did they do when they were promoting the sequel? They took out the Japanese and Taiwanese flag because they didn't want to anger the Communist Party overlords. Now, it ended up, they got a lot of grief. I went to the Senate floor and lit the movie company up 
And they ended up putting them back, but only after China blocked the movie. <laughs> so so it there is an example, a persistent example. By the way, I discuss in the movie something in the book something else. It'd be interesting if your listeners sit back and think about an A-list marquee movie star who is now utterly banned from any major studio production. And you probably know the answer because you worked for years in this, but the person I'm thinking of is Richard Gere. Richard Gere used to be a big deal, as big a movie star as there was, movies like, like An Officer and a Gentleman, movies like Pretty Women. Richard Gere was, was a marquee idol. And then what did he do? He dared to speak out in defense of Tibet. And even though Richard Gere is a down-the-line liberal, he's a Democrat, he's a leftist, but he does actually believe in human rights and he spoke out in favor of Tibet, every single Hollywood movie studio has blackballed Richard Gere because you are not allowed to anger the Chinese communists. It's an example of how that's not even ideological. That is about power to protect the communist regime. Yeah. I, by the way, I appreciated your mention, your kind mention of me in the Hollywood chapter uh, in Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. I sounded much nicer than I actually am, but I, I, I always appreciate that. You know, why you describe in the book the, the takeover of the institutions. Why are, were conservatives so clueless and why are they so unable to confront this? You know, one of the problems is between the left and the right, the left has always understood the power of ideas. They embrace the power of ideas. The right does not. If you look at the best and the brightest among leftists today, what do they go do? They go into journalism. They go into the academy. They go into government. Uh, they go into entertainment. They go into all of the organs of transmission of ideas. Barack Obama is the epitome of the perfect leftist from, from being Illinois senator to president of the United States to now producing garbage on Netflix. Like you could not design a leftist in a laboratory more perfect than Barack Obama. On the right, what are the best and brightest do? They go make money. They go into business, they go make money. But the result is we don't fight in the battleground of ideas. So, Andrew, I mentioned that the book lays out a positive battle plan for how we take these institutions back. There, there are really three buckets of tools that I advocate we use. The first is just sunshine and transparency. Look, the ideas of the radical left are wildly unpopular. Simply exposing them. So an example I talk about for K through 12 is what happened in Loudoun County in Virginia, where, where a, a teenage girl was sexually assaulted by a boy wearing a skirt in the girl's bathroom. The school district covered it up. They hid it. They denied it because their political ideology mattered more than keeping kids safe. Now, what ended up happening is parents in Virginia got pissed off. And that is the direct reason that Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, got elected governor, that, that, that a bunch of moms who had voted for Joe Biden one year earlier got so mad that they flipped their vote. That's the power of sunshine. The second tool I advocate is changing the cost-benefit analysis, changing the ledger to dramatically increase the costs of going woke. And so, for example, in the chapter on big business, I do a deep dive into what happened at Disney and what happened at Bud Light and what happened at Target. 
And those companies collectively lost tens of billions of dollars because they prioritized their politics over their customers. And, and, and that we've got to change the balance to disincentivize the next company going down that road. But the third avenue that, that, that I focus on is that conservatives and libertarians need to invest in the organs of transmission of ideas. And so if you have a, a, a business business owner who's watching this podcast, who's done well, I have advice for you. Go out and buy a TV station, buy a radio station, buy a newspaper, buy a book publishing house, buy a movie studio, engage in the fights. An example that, that I point to, the best example of this is Elon Musk's buying Twitter. The single most important pro-free speech development in decades, and the counterexample I used, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post for $300 million. Now, Bezos, I am confident, did not do so because he is bullish on the long-term profitability of print media. That isn't why he did it. He did it to own the commanding heights of political discourse. And listen, there are a lot of conservatives. $300 million is a lot of money. I don't have it. You don't have it. But there are a lot of conservatives in business that could raise that kind of money and invest in it. And the problem is, instead, what they say is, you know what? I could earn an additional half percent rate of return making widgets in North Carolina. Well, you might be able to until the entire foundations <laughs> of our country are destroyed. Right. And if we don't want to, we've got to be in the battleground of ideas. Here is a resolution that's easy to keep and delivers immediately on its promise. With GenuCell skincare, you can turn back the clock and look 5, 10, or even 15 years younger. Right now, GenuCell Skincare is celebrating 2024 with its New Year's sales event. You'll save over 70% off all your GenuCell must-haves in their most popular package. Say goodbye to those fine lines, forehead wrinkles, sagging jawline, dark marks, skin redness, and even under-eye bags. Leave them in 2023. GenuCell works for women and men. It's safe for all skin types. It's perfect for skin of any age. Plus, with its immediate effects, GenuCell promises results that will make you smile, guaranteed, or 100% of your money back. And right now, for a limited time, GenuCell's top-selling hyaluronic acid serum is included free in every most popular package. Again, I was talking to the people, the ladies in the advertising department, and they said to me, oh yeah, we're using this stuff. We're all using it. It's great. It's, we've never seen anything like it. They can't get enough. Let me tell you, we have beautiful ladies at this place, obviously, and I'm not allowed to talk about it because HR will come storming in here. They'll drag me out. But you can enjoy maximum skin hydration for a more youthful appearance. Go to GenuCell.com slash Clavin and enter code Clavin at checkout for extra savings. Every order placed is automatic upgraded to free shipping. Don't wait. Visit GenuCell.com slash Clavin and enter code Clavin. That's GenuCell.com slash Clavin. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I want Clavin to make nasty remarks about how beautiful I am too. How do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy You know, one of the things that really got me about the book uh, is it starts... The book is Unwoke, and it starts with a depiction of your, your father. And I didn't really realize this about him, that he was a, a dedicated Cuban communist in the beginning. This is before, obviously, he assassinated Kennedy, uh, <laughs> as Donald Trump accused him. Um, but, but he was a dedicated Cuban communist and came to his senses, saw the truth, saw what it was. But I, 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 the first thing that made me wonder is, does that give you some understanding 
of why it's so easy for young people to get sucked into this and some idea of how to stop it. I mean, when I hear, I, I heard this young person after October 7th, the horrible attacks in Israel, and she was shouting out, oh, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing to show that they won't be dominated. And she quoted Chairman Mao. And I, thought, I thought, here's a Columbia student that's an Ivy League school who thinks that Chairman Mao was just a great guy. You know, you quote this guy who murdered 65, the greatest mass murderer in human history. And she's quoting him. Is there some way to reach these people without literally storming the universities? Well, look, we've got to reach them with truth. And, yeah. and you're right. The book starts off with telling my family story of my father being born and growing up in Cuba. And, and when he was 14, he joined the communist revolution. He joined Fidel Castro in fighting in the revolution. And he spent several years as a teenager fighting. And, and it's one of the things my dad has told me since is he said, look, that was the revolution. It was a bunch of 15 and 14 and 15 year old boys who didn't know any better. <laughs> and Marxists always, always, always start with the young and typically teenagers. You look at every communist revolution on the face of the globe. It has been young people. Fidel Castro was fresh out of college. He was in his 20s. It, it is young people who are idealistic. They're passionate. They want to change the world. But they also haven't lived long enough that, to have life experience, to have wisdom. So they're easily deceived. And, and the left very consciously targets the young, whether in K through 12 education or whether in university. So a story I tell again in the introduction of the book, my grandmother, my abuela, was a sixth grade teacher in Cuba. And she described to me how when the revolution succeeded and Castro took over, one of the very first things that, that, that he did is he sent the soldiers into the grade schools, into the kindergartens in the first grades. And the soldiers would have all the students, tell all the students, close your eyes and pray to God for candy. And the kids would all do so. They'd open their eyes. There'd be no candy. And then the soldiers would say, close your eyes and pray to Fidel Castro for candy. <laughs> And the kids would do so, and the soldiers would very quietly slip a piece of candy on each child's desk. That is Marxism. Start young, destroy their allegiance to anything other than the state, destroy their allegiance to God, destroy their allegiance to their parents, to their family. It's why you see at schools, schools pushing the extreme transgender agenda who are saying, don't tell your parents, we'll keep it a secret from your parents. We will do this because they want to break your allegiance to anything that can distract from their power. And understanding, you know, another story I tell in the book, you're talking about young people in Mao. I described when I was a freshman at, at Princeton and, and I showed up and, and the Ivy League world is not a world I knew. No one in my family had ever gone to an Ivy League college. I, I was the son of an immigrant from Cuba. And this was a, a strange new world for me. But sophomore year of college, a guy down the hall from me in my dorm had a poster on the wall of Che Guevara, and he was celebrating Che Guevara. And, and I remember walking into his dorm room and I said, hey, man, that is awesome. That is so cool. I said, have you thought of maybe putting a Hitler next to it? <laughs> or, or, or how about a Stalin or a Mao? Because, look, I mean, Che was a genocidal, sadistic, murdering bastard. But, but frankly, he was an amateur. He didn't kill nearly as many as Hitler. Or, or, and, and, and the look of complete befuddlement of this student, that made no sense to him. 
because look, Che was good looking and he had a five o'clock shadow and, and, you know, he was rugged. So, you know, what's a little mass murder between friends? Truth is powerful. And we got to explain so the, once again, the book is Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America by Senator Ted Cruz. Let's let's talk a little bit about the election. We're taping this before the Iowa caucuses, and it's apparently going to snow so badly in Iowa that there may be no Iowa caucuses. What's your take on what's going to happen going forward? I, the polls show Trump way in the lead. Do you think that that's the way it's going to end up? You know, I don't know. I am deliberately staying out of the primary. And, and so I, I'm going to trust the voters to make that determination. Uh, whoever wins, I'm going to support the Republican nominee and do so enthusiastically, because I think we are wildly on the wrong path. I think it, I've never seen as much damage done to our country as has been done in the last three years under Joe Biden. And, and one of the consequences, I talk about this a lot in the chapter on government, Donald Trump broke the Democrats. He shattered their brains. They hate him so much that he drove them to the radical left. The cultural Marxists are in charge of this administration. Donald Trump also broke the media. So journalists, the chapter I have on journalism, I describe how a decade ago, let's take something like CNN. CNN, a decade ago, even back as 2015, 2016, they aspired to be journalists. So they held out in their mind, their objective was to be fair and balanced, to present both sides, to let the people decide, that they thought they were being impartial. Now, they were always terrible at it. They always leaned left. But that goal was there. Trump broke them. I used to go on CNN once a week. I haven't been on CNN in years. Because now CNN will have a panel of five people all to discuss how Donald Trump is the devil. And those are the only views allowed. And, and the media now views their mission as being propagandist. It's no longer present both sides. Things like we must defend democracy, by which they mean only elect left-wing Democrats. That not electing a left-wing Democrat means democracy is destroyed. And, you know, one of the things Marxists do inevitably, they accuse their opponents of doing the thing they are doing. And so every Democrat who says we're defending democracy simultaneously cheers when Colorado and Maine throw Donald Trump off the ballot and say the best way to defend democracy is stop the voters from voting for your opponent. It, it, it is a rabid hypocrisy. And, and so, look, I don't know who the nominee is going to be. You're right. Trump has a big lead. That certainly appears from the polling who it's going to be. If he's the nominee, I will support him enthusiastically. But I think we've got to pull the country back from the brink. I think we're very close to going over the edge. You know, you were Trump's first time out. You were the last man standing against him, and and put up a, a powerful fight against him. He, I mean, he was not very nice to you. Only I guess because he didn't want to leave you out. You know, I mean, why? it's not like he's nice to anybody. But but you supported him. You decided that this was the right thing to do. Do you share any of the fears of the left? The left has been putting out with one unified voice. If he gets elected again. He's going to turn into, uh, no, not going as far as Hitler, but it's the end of democracy. He's going to be a dictator. Do you have any fears that he's out of control in any way? So, look, again, I think it is ironic. What the left accuses their opponents of doing is what they're doing. You want to talk about dictator? Take a look at Joe Biden. Let's look at our southern border. Do you know there's never been a president in our nation's history that's remotely done what Biden has done? 
which is why do we have this crisis at the southern border? Because Alejandro Mayorkas under Joe Biden simply defies federal law, ignores law. And when illegal immigrants are apprehended, he just releases them. He does catch and release. And that's resulted in 9.6 million illegal immigrants since Joe Biden became president, the worst in history. Drew, I've joked, Joe Biden did something I thought was impossible. He made me miss Barack Obama. (laughs) And and the reason, on immigration, Barack Obama, by and large, followed the law. Other than DACA, he followed the law. And in particular, he deported millions of people. Remember, the left got mad at Barack Obama. They called him the deporter in chief. Well, Joe Biden, we've never seen a president. Our constitutional system isn't meant to function. When you have a president who says, I don't give a damn what the law is, I'm going to do what I want. You look at decision after decision from Joe Biden that's been struck down in the courts. He tried to forgive student loans from millions of Americans, utterly lawless, said, I'm going to give away trillions of dollars because I want to buy votes. Now, that's the behavior of a dictator. An actual president bound by rule of law doesn't do that. And and, and so it really is quite amazing. Listen, Is Trump's rhetoric overheated at times? Yes. Although Joe Biden's rhetoric is hateful and extreme. But there is language Trump uses that I wish he wouldn't. It's not language I use, and I wish he would refrain. He's not going to. He is who he is. He's going to keep saying what he says. But if you actually look at his record, (laughs) you know, challenge some leftist who says he's a dictator. Really, he was president four years. Name one thing he did. By the way, who is it that engages in censorship online that gives Beck Tech to silence their opponents? That would be Democrats. Who is it that sends in the FBI as stormtroopers to arrest their political opponents? That would be Democrats. Who is it that has abused our justice system, has weaponized it, has brought four indictments against their political opponent trying to, trying to put him in jail? That would be Democrats. And so I actually view the, the dictator Uh, accusation is really ironic because if you compare the substantive record, it is night and day and there is no comparison between what the Trump administration actually did and what the Biden administration is doing right now. You know, you you said that Trump broke the Democrat Party, which I think is is true, but he also broke the Republican Party to a degree. And I'm I know I'm not alone among conservatives in feeling that the Republican Party is kind of soft, that they do not stand up. I mean, you're talking about all yeah. these things that the Democrats have done, but the Republicans seem to be frozen in their attempts to stop them. And and a lot of times they just I, I'm again I'm not alone in thinking this. They just don't seem to have the fight in them that that Trump has demonstrated. And you've demonstrated, and And to be fair, you've demonstrated as well. But Look, you're putting your finger on the single thing I like best about Donald Trump and that most conservatives like best about Donald Trump is that he's got backbone, he's got guts, he's not afraid of the Democrats, he's not afraid of the media. There are so many Republicans who who act like they're scared of their own shadow. I serve in the United States Senate. It, It is a mess looking at the United States Senate because they run away from fights over and over and over again. And listen, when, when I ran for president in 2016, as you noted, it came down to me and Trump. We were head to head. Um, I'm the only person who has beat it, beaten him repeatedly. I won 12 states, 8 million votes nationwide. And the reason, and by the way, other than Trump and me, no, no Republican won more than a single state. Mm. Kasich won Ohio, Rubio won Minnesota, and Trump and I won every other state in the country. And the reason, frankly, is the voters wanted someone with the guts to stand up and fight. And that's what I've been doing. That's what Trump 
promised to do, and it's what he's done. And 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 you're right. The 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 willingness of of so many Washington Republicans to run away from a fight is infuriating. And it's a big part of the reason Trump has the support he has in this front. Well, do you think that the Republicans will change? I mean, the media narrative is that anybody Trump supports or anybody who has MAGA uh, on his resume or even in his conversation loses and that the Democrats spend money elevating some of these guys in, in the belief that they'll lose. Are Republicans right to keep their heads down? I mean, can they win with an aggressive agenda? Look, I, I think you win by standing on substance. I'm I'm a big believer, as Margaret Thatcher said, first you win the argument, then you win the vote. <laughs> I think you win elections by drawing a line in the sand, by making the election about something. This is the biggest argument I have with Mitch McConnell and Republican leadership, is Republican leadership in Washington believes you win elections by standing for nothing, by running away from fights, by taking no risks. And I think that is utterly stupid. If you do that, you take away the reason anyone has to show up and vote for you. You're talking about snowstorms in Iowa. Well, who's going to go out in the snowstorm? Only people who really give a damn, who have a reason, who care. And, and if it's a decision between lukewarm and bleh, who cares? Stay at home by the fire rather than go and, and, and so I think that's what elections are about. As Ronald Reagan said, paint in bold colors, not pale pastels. This is about standing for something that matters. Now, when it comes to, to candidates, I, I will say this, candidate selection matters. So here's my approach in terms of endorsements. I endorse candidates all over the country. I endorse candidates for Senate, for governor, for the House. I, I don't think there is a Republican in the country who has campaigned for more Republican candidates in the last 10 years than I have all over the country. The last election, 2022, I did a, a nationwide 37-stop bus tour campaigning for other Republicans. And, and Andrew, my philosophy on endorsements is simple. I support the strongest conservative who can win. Both of those are important. Strongest conservative, I want a real record. I care about finding someone who's been in the fights, who has the scars, who has the battle wounds of standing for conservative principles. But I also care deeply about who can win. If you can't win, you might be the best conservative on earth. But if you don't have a path to victory, if you can't raise the money, if you can't organize, if you can't run a campaign, I don't have time to waste time with you. The stakes on the country are too great. This isn't a game. And so I do think we need to be very serious and, and direct in terms of finding the right candidates to support. Um, and, and that's something that, that Republicans in the past have not done as good a job doing. I hope we do better. Senator Ted Cruz, the book is Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. It's always good talking to you. I hope you'll come back and talk some more. Andrew, thank you. It was great to be with you. And I hope you guys go online and buy the book. Um, it's it's designed to be, and I think it is, a fun, interesting read. It'll educate you. It'll inform you. It'll give you the tools you need that when you're sitting down at dinner with your friends and family, when you're arguing with your crazy left-wing neighbor, when you're talking to your kids or grandkids, and let me say especially, go buy a copy of this book for your kids or grandkids. They need to hear the truth. That's how we counter lies is with truth. That's how we counter darkness is with light. And Drew, you're doing it every day. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. I appreciate it, Senator. See you again. Take care. All right. Always good to talk to Senator Ted Cruz. I just, it just really is uh, nice to hear an actual, uh, fearless 
conservative voice. You know, I know uh, people obviously ended up uh, preferring Trump, but I always like to see what he's up to and what he has to say. And I always like to see what I'm up to and what I have to say. And that's why I tune in every Friday to hear the Andrew Clavin show. I hope you'll be there.